This is Policy, Guns and Money, the ASPE podcast. ASPE's war in 2025 conference was held last month and attracted some leading lights in defence, strategy and policy. We took the opportunity to grab some of these people for some one-on-one discussions and we're excited to bring you these interviews in the second War in 2025 special episode. You'll hear from Rebecca Stratting and Aspis Huang Li Tu on the strategic policy challenges of the Indo-Pacific, and from Andrew Davies on a future force structure for the ADF, defence spending and hypersonics. First up, Aspis Sarah O'Connor spoke with strategist and senior fellow at New America, Peter W. Singer, on information warfare and social media, a topic he's calling Like War. The benefit of that listeners could you please explain the concept of like war sure well first thanks for having me the idea of like war is that the internet shifted from being merely a originally it was a space of communication between scientists then it became for all of us then it became big business but along the way it began to feel a little bit like a war zone every single event that happens whether it's an election whether it's an actual battle whether it's a product release, a party among teenagers, there's this back and forth, there's this conflict on everything from who's right or wrong to what actually happened, what's the truth of it. Uh, and that's the first idea of like war. But our group spent about five years tracking how social media was being used. You know. Everything by um, teenagers in Chicago, politicians in Europe, the U.S., uh, by authoritarian governments in the Middle East and Asia, by terrorist groups around the world, by Russian disinformation warriors. And we found this second thing, and this is what we're calling uh, the idea of like war as a mode of conflict. That is, if you think of cyber war as the hacking of networks, like war is the hacking of people on the networks by driving ideas viral through a mix of likes, shares, but also lies. And just like in regular old cybersecurity, it's kind of funny to say that, but you know, we've been at cybersecurity for well over a generation now. Mm-hmm. What happens on the network, um, first, it has impact on the world beyond. And um, the same thing in terms of these uh, campaigns, they can influence the outcome of of an election. They can influence um, whether terrorist groups rise or fall. They can influence um, disease outbreaks. Uh, But also you get this strange uh, parallel in terms of the tactics, the rules of the game. So in, you know, regular cybersecurity, you'll have teenagers using the very same tools Uh, as hacktivists or as pranksters that uh, a group of criminals might use to rob a bank or a government might use to uh, target another military. It's the same thing in like war. You get this strange space where um, ISIS's top recruiter is copycatting celebrities like Taylor Swift or Russian military intelligence is using the very same digital marketing tools that Aspie used to advertise the conference that I'm at, except they used it to sabotage an election, right? So it's a strange space, but it's a reality. We all have to grow up and, and deal with it. You actually started researching this before the, the presidential election. And as you were going, just you kept on getting in more examples of exactly what you were looking at. And you actually got to, in your research, track the evolution of these um, cyber strategies and this like war. 
So you, you hit it exactly. Um, we started on this uh, about five years back, and it started uh, in terms of a conversation in my office with um, Emerson on um, these sort of strange things. At the time, they seemed strange. Now they seem quite normal, and I think that's kind of part of it. And, and they were everything from uh, Israel announcing the start of a war by releasing a YouTube video to a terrorist group essentially live tweeting its operation. This was in, in Kenya when they took over a, a, a shopping center. And then at the time, the Kenyan government was trying to control all information. And so there was a strange moment where the terrorists were the world's only source of information about an act of terrorism. And then they realized, hold it, we don't have to tell the truth. And, you know, now, of course, that makes perfect sense to the U.S. military changed its policy to allow soldiers that were deployed to Afghanistan to use social media, to use Facebook. And that led to, you know, if you pull back in history, totally different relationships between them and the home front. You know, they could link to their families in a new way, but also links to their adversary. You know, you could friend a Taliban member, um, or I remember, you know, back in the day, you could have a back and forth with an ISIS member. In turn, they could do the same to a soldier. Um, and so it's this, wow, this, this, this doesn't fit the way we thought the world worked. And then, of course, it became the way. But then, you know, as it played out, as the, as the research continued, we had everything from, you know, what Russia was doing in Ukraine to it hitting the U.S. election. And it was this mix of on one hand, there were things that were surprising to people, and yet they made perfect sense if you connected the dots. Uh, we actually did an article for The Atlantic before the election that talked about all of these issues. But, you know, you compare that to, you know, for example, the reporters who were um, doing domestic politics they didn't understand, you know, Russian disinformation warfare. And so they enabled it, even yeah. though anyone who had been tracking what was happening in Ukraine or whatnot was like, yeah, that's a playbook. Um, and so you had that. And then it was also, you know, a little bit like watching a um, train wreck. Uh, and, you know, so that led us, we were constantly um, kind of updating what we were looking at, what we were studying. And then, you know, a real difficulty became kind of where do you cut it off? This is a book that uh, we actually left 70,000 words on the cutting room floor. I mean, we had some some great details. Yeah, the sequel. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, we had some great details on, I went back and read all of Donald Trump's old tweets so that you didn't have to. <laughs> um, and so, you know, there was a history of, in the book, we have the history of his very first tweet, but, you know, there were some fascinating things that he was doing around 2011, 2012, and kind of the moment that he pivoted into politics. You know, there was a lot of things that, that we would love to go on deeper into but the point of the, the book is, hey, this is global. So it, instead of um, building around cases, it instead says, these are the rules. And we're then going to give you examples of the rules as they apply for good, for bad, not just in the U.S. You know, you might have an example from Egypt. You might have an example from Australia. You might have an example from China showing that, hey, there's something bigger going on here. You did mention just then those rules, and you identified five key rules. Uh, would you like to just briefly mention those for listeners? Sure. So um, what's key about these rules is they're important to understand whether you are in the military, whether you are in government, 
whether you are in business, whether you are a consumer, a citizen, uh, we're all players in this realm now. So the first rule is like what the X-Files told us, the truth is out there. We're in a world now of um, mass collection, mass distribution, uh, and so you can gather data on macro trends, but also the most micro details of someone's life. And that can give you new insights into how the world's working, what your customers are doing, what military units are doing, what voters are doing. And what's important about this is that that sharing, some of it may be deliberate, um, you know, a selfie uh, that you can then mine for information. Some of it may be undeliberate, uh, something that's going on in the background, not just the visual background of a selfie, but the tech background, you know, geolocation, where is that person? It might even be able to be mined for psychological information. What are the um, things that you're revealing through these, these postings of not just what you're thinking, but the way that you think? That's, for example, the importance of like the Cambridge Analytica controversy. So you have that first rule, and that's affected, again, everything from businesses to how political campaigns operate. The second rule is, yeah, the truth may be out there, but it can be buried underneath a sea of lies. That's the essence of everything from Russian Chinese government disinformation campaigns, how domestic politics has shifted to how corporations deal with crises now. And the scale of this uh, is greater than I think most people realize. Uh, in the United States, for example, we're still coming to grips with um, the scale of what played out in the 2016 election, where now we know, uh, for instance, that 143 million Americans were unknowingly exposed to Russian propaganda via Facebook alone. That's half our population. Importantly, it's not just what happens online, it's how it influences other media. Over 90% of professional journalists use uh, social media to determine what stories to cover, who to interview for them, what angle to take, whether to do another story on it. So we see it, these online trends affecting um, newspaper articles, affecting um, radio talk shows, you name it. Then that leads to the third rule, which is we're in a world where virality trumps veracity. It's more important than that something go viral than whether it's true or not, if you're weighing the impact of it on everything from an election, a terrorist campaign, the science of how vaccines work. It doesn't mean that the truth can't go viral. It just means that there, it, it's not inherently going to win out. And then that leads to the final issue, which is a new set of winners and losers where the groups that understand these new dynamics are using them to shake up the art of the possible in everything from politics to terrorism to business operations. You know, the um, example of you can't tell the story of ISIS, its rise, it, even its battlefield tactics without weaving in the story of social media or, you know, certainly um, Donald Trump, he himself will say, I, did, I would not have won without social media, but he's then become a model for how politicians operate uh, around the world. So it's not changing. Uh, but then this, this issue of new winners and losers leads to the ultimate kind of winner and loser, which are the new powers behind the throne. And that's the idea that the platform companies, the ones that run these networks, which are now you know marketplaces, but they're also battle spaces, they have a newfound power that they're very uneasy with and we're uneasy with. And you can see them kind of wrestling with the impact of what should they allow or not and then our comfort or discomfort with, well, 
who's is it up to the company to police the network? Is it up to government? What's the interaction between them? And so, you know, the point is an individual like a Mark Zuckerberg, you know, he's not just a, a gajillionaire, uh, that's a technical term. Um, he's also one of the most powerful people in war and politics today, because with a change of his mind, he can tell the playing field whether, you know, the, the playing field is the news media business, a Russian government uh, disinformation campaign, the science of vaccines. His change of mind tilts whether that point of view wins out or not in this most important space. In our recent report, Hacking Democracies, we found that increasingly the information environment around elections is being targeted by information operations, with hostile actors successfully hacking the public discourse rather than the information networks and election infrastructure. Are liberal democracies at a disadvantage when it comes to information operations? And if so, what can we do about it without compromising our democratic values? Sure, and, and that, that report is, is a really great resource that I've actually used in other spaces. And one of its most important findings was the U.S. 2016 election, you can sort of think of as um, a test ground where was looked at by adversaries as a success, but also other actors looked at that and said, hey, I can do that too. And those other actors range from, um, in the report, I think it cites uh, 20 other national elections since have um, seen foreign government disinformation attacks. But we also see a proliferation of it to um, domestic actors uh, all the way down, you know, whether it's it's um, networks to even individuals. Um, and again, it might be going after elections uh, and we should expect that whether it's in, you know, in the U.S., we have an upcoming election to Australia, Canada, you name it. Taiwan. Uh, Taiwan, you name it. Um, but also coming not just from the Russians, yeah. um, including you use the term hostile actors, the challenge of what about domestic actors? Um, and it feels incredibly challenging. Uh, and as you put it, it almost, you know, what can liberal democracies do in this uh, facing this onslaught? But it's not without hope. Um, what we should be doing is looking at successful examples of other nations that have weathered this kind of storm and lessons from other uh, parallel fields. So the other nations model would, for example, be Estonia. Um, Estonia uh, has a whole of society approach that I think is a really good model for other democracies. You know, they've preserved their freedom of speech. They're, they're highly digital, and yet they do a better job of defending themselves than the U.S. or Australia does in this space. There's a lot to learn from that. There's other uh, examples from fields like public health or regular old cybersecurity. And what it leads to, these, this combination, is um, the idea that there's not going to be a silver bullet solution to this. Instead, uh, we need to look at it as a risk that's always going to be with us as long as there is social media and people, there's going to be this kind of activity. How can we drive down that risk? How can we manage it? How can we better secure ourselves? And then on the silver bullet side, there's not just one thing that we do. What Estonia does really well is it has a whole of society approach. It has everything from an overall national strategy. That's something that um, is lacking in most other democracies. And when I say strategy, I mean, everything from not just um, military tasking to 
what are our foreign affairs our, our, in the U.S. State Department doing about this? If 20 democracies have faced this, why are we not building a coalition to do everything from sharing lessons learned to the way you would an alliance of saying, you know, an attack on one of us is an attack on all. Um, what about education system? Uh, how are we building up digital literacy? So there's a government role. There's a role for companies. For the platform companies themselves, they need to uh, essentially take on more responsibility for what's playing out on their networks and be more proactive about it. Uh, they've been um, too often surprised by toxic behavior when it was easy to pro project that it would happen. Essentially, it goes to the idea of they have a greater responsibility uh, for these spaces that are not just about business anymore. It goes to other companies they need to be messaging to the platform companies, hey, I am not comfortable with, for example, my ad dollars being spent along, uh, you know, whether it's conspiracy theory, disinformation or the like. And then finally, there's a role for each of us as individuals. We are just like in public health or just like in cybersecurity, the attacks go after the most vulnerable. Um, in this space, it's, it's those that are ignorant. Um, and I don't mean that as a mean term, it's just we have a space right now where, for example, 60% of internet users don't know how the companies make money, let alone have the inability to distinguish between not just merely real and fake news, but between a ad and a news article. And But there's also, it's not just sort of this, this notion of um, understanding, it's also about ethics. I teach my kids, cover your mouth when you cough. That's not about defending themselves. It's about their responsibility for defending those that they network with. Yeah. It's the same thing online. Think about the different ways that we look and um, understand someone who shares disinformation, conspiracy theory, um, something a little bit hateful. You know, it might be a friend, it might be a family member, it might be a work acquaintance. Think about how we treat them online. We kind of shrug it off versus if they coughed in our face. Yeah. We wouldn't shrug that off, but for some reason we're okay with that toxic behavior online. And so it's incumbent on all of us, not just merely to not be that person, but also to help with kind of the policing of it in terms of our own interactions. Thank you so much for chatting with us, Peter. Thank you. Wang Le Tu is a senior analyst in ASPE's Defense and Strategy Program. She met up with Rebecca Stratting of La Trobe University to discuss the policy challenges of the Indo-Pacific. Hi, Beck. We are at the sidelines of the um, World 2025 Conference of ASPE, and we just concluded two major panels on the geostrategic realities and trends. What are your, some of your key takeaways so far? Uh, thanks for having me here, Huang. It's great to be here to um, to listen to these experts talking about these really big global issues and tectonic shifts in power. And one of the the things that really struck me about the first two panels about trajectories of power looking towards twenty twenty five is the divergent opinions about China mm -hmm. uh, in particular. First, about how rapid um, China's rise uh, relative to other states in the Indo-Pacific is, how likely uh, China is to um, exceed US 
military capacity and when that's likely to happen, um, but also the the sort of the internal vulnerabilities of China that are sometimes underplayed or ignored mm -hmm. when it comes to um, discussing these broad trends. And I think it was Penny Burt who raised our attention to this rise of China narrative that it's kind of an inevitable process that, that doesn't really get to the heart of some of the domestic pressures. Uh, and the economic um, sort of issues and demographic issues um, that were pointed out. So I think that's my first takeaway is that when we're looking towards, you know, it's 2025 is only six years away, mm -hmm. we still really, it's crystal ball stuff in terms of um, to what extent are we in a power transition, to what extent have we has the rules-based order already kind of disappeared um, to what extent was there ever really a rules-based order is also yeah, I think a, a question right. that um, that there's sort of been touched on mm -hmm. a little bit throughout this um, session but the other takeaway particularly from the second session mm -hmm. uh, which was a, a survey really of perspectives um, to the regional on the regional security order um, from regional players and their approaches to um, the changing power dynamics in the region. That session was really interesting in just looking at different worldviews and how different states approach um, these dynamics very differently. And Huang, your presentation on Southeast Asia is a perfect example of that. I feel like often um, ASEAN is sort of homogenised mm -hmm. in some ways, but incredibly um, diverse region. Right. Uh, and while we tend to say, um, oh, Southeast Asian states generally hedges, that's yeah. not true either. And they hedge in very different ways. Ways if they do hedge and some lean towards the United States, some have alliances with the United States, others are, you know, sort of bandwagoning with China. But we really, in this country, we really need to have a more granular understanding of those states that we are seeking to deepen our partnerships with, which we are in, in the 2016 Defence White Paper and the 2017 Foreign Policy White Paper. The emphasis is on this kind of diversification right. uh, of, of foreign policy. So the question for Australia, I guess, and, and something that we did bring up um, in the session is how do you go about doing that? Mm -hmm. How do we strengthen our understanding? But also, is it possible? What are the limits? Is it possible to have to deepen our relationships with states that actually have different perspectives. And Southeast Asia is a great example of that. That's why it's so challenging because we are at the at the really era of changes, big changes. Perhaps you know there are a lot of comparisons, and then there are a lot of um, uh, opinions said about how this uh, particular era is is uh, defining not only for the the region as a whole, but individual countries as well. Because it is the first time, for example, for Australia to to face a major power that does not share its values and and norms. So that's a big big challenge for Australia. For Southeast Asia, I agree. It's always I've always um, tried to uh, advocate for more time for Southeast Asian perspective because um, of the diversity. But also, I think Southeast Asia is interesting not just because it is our neighbor, but it, because there is so much fluidity in there. And by watching closely what Southeast Asia does in individual choices, individual policies, um, we can learn a, a great deal uh, as well. And uh, 
I also um, always uh, repeat that uh, everyone is not just a subject of great power competition, like Southeast Asia is often portrayed as, you know, a very desirable geostrategic uh, real estate uh, and so on and so forth. But actually, it is an important uh, actor. And as I uh, highlighted in my presentation, towards 2025 and beyond, it will be a region that has increasingly more say because of its economic weight. But also, if we want to imagine um, a world of multipolarity, then Southeast Asia it might as well be one of the important poles. Mm, that's right. I, I agree. Um, it's something that our research um, shares in common, is that belief in the agency of smaller and middle powers. Uh, and that um, actually uh, they're not sort of helpless victims of great power competition, particularly not in Southeast Asia, because they leverage the competition um, in order to be able to advance their interests as well. So there are vulnerabilities, but there's also possibilities. And that's something that, um, you know, that states in Southeast Asia actually really do quite well in, in their hedging approaches and behaviours, I think. So one of the interesting things coming out of the session is this idea that Australia is really deeply firmly committed to mm -hmm. the rules-based order mm -hmm. and that that rules-based order is sort of intimately linked with its Indo-Pacific concept and, it, and its sort of emerging strategy that's linked to that regional concept. Mm -hmm. So in terms of Southeast Asia, I'm want to know a little bit more about the the difference of opinions in Southeast Asia about those two concepts, about mm -hmm. the rules-based order. Yeah. And, you know, we know that there are some frontiers where certain, particularly maritime states, yes. are very concerned with um, the rules, the maritime rules in the South China Sea in particular. But what perspectives on this concept of a rules-based order or the yeah. discourse of the yeah. rules-based order, but also this Indo-Pacific concept, because the Indo and the Pacific erases Asia yeah. out of the title. And while we see Australia and, and other states talking about ASEAN as being the fulcrum of the Indo-Pacific, um, I know that your research has shown that actually the states of Southeast Asia do not approach this concept in, in similar ways. Yeah, that's right. There are different ways to look at the, the, the issues that you've raised. I think when we talk about rules-based order, everybody has different imagination. What is rules-based order? And we raise it actually in very different contexts whenever it suits, suits us, uh, basically. And I don't think um, Southeast Asia has uh, any issue with the current rules-based order. Um, the problem is how to enforce the rules-based mm. order. And that's also what my research has trying to, to show, that it is not a problem of rules, it is a problem of enforcement. In the Pacific, is a narrative that is trying to uphold this um, uh, rules-based order, but it doesn't, again, offer um, uh, a way how to enforce it again. So there are different voices in, in Southeast Asia. How do they look at the Indo-Pacific and what Indo-Pacific strategy will have, um, what kind of role of Indo-Pacific strategy will have in upholding uh, the rules-based order? I think um, uh, ASEAN as a whole is coming up uh, with its own uh, narrative of the Indo-Pacific. In the beginning, the region as a whole has been quite reticent about uh, the Indo-Pacific strategy because of um, the concerns that, that it might sideline or challenge its centrality. My research uh, has shown that it's not necessarily the case. Um, the, the problem is what is, um, you know, what is the role of, of ASEAN rules and norms that have been kind of leading the multilateralism right. and regional architecture uh, up until uh, 
uh, now-ish. Uh, so I think uh, for ASEAN, what uh, they want to be seen in this Indo-Pacific strategy as a continuation is ASEAN's role, uh, the continuous of ASEAN's uh, centrality, ASEAN's institution, because we can criticize ASEAN all day long, and, and, and a lot uh, a few of, of those criticisms are um, somehow justified. But I think one thing is also quite important is that ASEAN still is a platform and then is a place where it is able to include all actors, whether it's China or the US. And the problem with the Indo-Pacific at the moment, at least seen from, from Southeast Asia, is that it excludes China and you can't talk about the region which has a big hole where China lies. So, so I think that's, that's a, one of the key, key uh, contributions of ASEAN that it has been able and it still is um, able to bring all the major powers uh, in same, uh, to the same room. And I think that touches on one of the real challenges for states like Australia, who's been, you know, an enthusiastic adopter of the Indo-Pacific construct, uh, but as well as, you know, Japan and the United States and India, um, is this notion that it is um, necessarily a, a strategy to contain China and that China is not part of the Indo-Pacific because, you know, there's no reason why China can't be a part of the Indo-Pacific, but that's a perception that's created for you know how they operationalize the strategy but uh, I think that's that's one of the the real issues for our Indo-Pacific states yes that's right I mean uh, it's about open and transparency and inclusiveness that's what uh, ASEAN um, states would like to see inclusiveness and ability to work with both powers like Prime Minister Lee at a recent Shangri-La dialogue said we want to be friends with country A but we still want to be friends with country B so that's the ideal um, situation for smaller countries to be able to navigate in a neutral way with uh, with both major powers um, and not shut uh, out from uh, any of them because none of them uh, to be honest are able to to, uh, can afford uh, individually or even you know collectively um, individually uh, uh, stand up uh, towards China and and uh, sh- shut their da- economies down from Chinese uh, influence. And I think it also points to actually, you know, the, the states that are using this Indo-Pacific strategy also have different ideas about what that entails because That's the right. inclusivity that you're talking about That's right. is sort of attached to India's vision. And I know Priya Chako from the University of Adelaide has done work on, you know, how um, the Indian perception of what that means mm-hmm. is quite different. Yeah, um, yeah. Even Prime Minister Modi last year at yeah. Shangri-La said the same. I mean, he said it's about growth together. He, he um, emphasized China's role and China's economic contribution to the region. So um, even India, uh, it's not only Southeast Asian, but even the so-called um, four uh, countries that promote Indo-Pacific don't have exact uh, same understanding of what this Indo-Pacific strategy means. So I think that's why what um, earlier at the keynote speech today at the conference, um, Minister Reynolds said that it is important for uh, all countries to coordinate this Indo-Pacific strategy. But because before you can gain any support uh, from the region, whether they, uh, you know, are supportive of the Indo-Pacific or not, it, it needs to be clearly defined and clearly explained to them because a lot of t- times in the region I hear a lot of uh, confusion what it is and what it means. So that's already a first um, um, uh, obstacle in uh, supporting the Indo-Pacific strategy. And I think there's a problem 
uh, also with, you know, this idea of being able to align strategies. You know, there's reports just out that the US is planning a fusion centre in the Pacific that Australia was doing. So we can, we, we don't always, we're not always able to align our policies with our closest ally, let alone with, you know, a whole range of divergent states. Thank you for talking to me. Thank you. Finally, Aspie's Tom Uren and Aspie fellow Andrew Davies look at our Defence Force and ask the question, are we buying the right stuff? And finish off with a chat about hypersonics, hype or reality. Thanks for joining us today, Andrew. It's good to be here, Tom. So we've just come out of a session where Todd from DST, Elsa Kanya from CNAS and yourself have talked about different technologies that may change the future of warfare. Uh, we heard about fiber-guided lasers and microwave weapons. And before that, we heard from Peter Singer talking about the manipulation of information. And you talked about hypersonics and Elsa talked about how the PLA is thinking about the future and what they're investing in. What I really want to know is, as a nation and as a defense and national security enterprise, how do you decide what to spend your money on? You can tell a story about how any of those technologies could change the future of warfare, but it's based on, I guess, the probability that that will actually happen? Well, look, that's a really good question, Tom, but I think what it ultimately comes down to is what it is you're trying to defend. Um, and, and war is typically about sovereign decision-making, territory, and possibly access to resources. And, and those different technologies that we talked about in, in the conference session um, actually affect various one of those things, like the, the information warfare that Peter Singer talked about is really about sovereign decision-making. Now, there's a real question as to whether the people of the United States actually made um, an independent decision about their current administration um, or whether it was uh, manipulated effectively to the point of changing the election result by a hostile foreign power. If that's the main thing you worry about, then information warfare is the main aim of the game. If you're worried more about territory, for instance, if you're a Baltic state or Taiwan, then you have to worry about other things. You probably need to worry about information warfare as well because you can be weakened from within. Subversion is a way of softening up a country before you do something like invade it. But your force structure would look a bit different. If access to resources is your main driver, then you probably start to need to worry about things like sea lines of communication and uh, having um, adequate defence of your resources supply chain. So the, the question comes down to what is it that you're trying to protect? And you've got to make some educated guesses about who might be trying to threaten those things. So, so there's no one single answer. It's going to depend on where you are, when you are, and who you are. I still don't know that we're spending our money in the right way. Can I get a yes or a no answer? Well, look, I, I don't think anyone uh, out there who's, who's read anything I've written on the subject of force structuring will, will expect me to say anything other than I don't think we're getting it right either. Um, because if you look at the biggest ticket items that we've got, and that's our future maritime capability, uh, future submarines and future surface combatants. We're talking about things that are going to be delivered in the 2030s. And we're looking forward to a 2020s that looks pretty fraught at the moment in the Asia Pacific. Uh, and we, we could reasonably have some serious questions about both the will and the capacity of the United States to continue to be the supplier of security that it has been. 
So I think at the very least, we're out of sync with our timeframes. I think we might be out of sync with what we're actually buying as well. That reminds me of the Irish joke of how to get to a pub. And if I were you, I wouldn't start from here. Well, and that's the problem for any force structuring discussion. Um, you have the force that you have. The defence force we have today would be instantly recognisable to a defence planner in the Menzies government. These things have a real inertia about them, both, both cultural within the defence force, but also the sheer amount of investment and the time it takes to deliver. Uh, we'll be talking at the ASPE conference as well about the need for a new defence white paper. But the fact of the matter is we're only just finishing off delivering the 2000 defence white paper. One of the things that really interests me is how you build innovation into an organisation like Defence. And there's been quite a lot of academic work around business innovation. There doesn't seem to be an answer for how to deliver that within the structures, that, the sort of constraints of a Defence Force. Do you think that there's some answer in trying to encourage innovation, particularly in the Australian Defence Force? Look, militaries have very strong cultures, and that's both a strength and a weakness. It's a strength in as much as you look at the jobs that the military is called on to do. Having a really strong institutional culture is very important. Um, when it's all said and done, we're sending people in harm's way to do really dangerous things. And it requires a certain mindset and, and firmness of resolve and all sorts of things that organisational culture can contribute to in order to do that. Um, that said, it does make them a little bit set in their ways as well, and it makes them less willing to embrace innovation. My feeling is that innovation almost needs to be pushed upon defence forces, but that begs the obvious question is who's going to do it? Certainly the public sector itself, at times it thinks that it's been innovative, but when you compare it to or you talk to people in industry, they're firmly of the view that it's not. Clayton Christensen's done a lot of work around innovation and his answer for businesses would be to start up a totally new business and keep it separate from the old business. So do we need business units that are part of defence but separate from the ADF, but say a yeah. drone warfare division? Uh, look, I, I think what would happen in that case, well, there's a lot of fixed costs with doing that for a start. You know, you've got an Air Force that's very good at flying aeroplanes. Um, it would make sense to give them the drones. Um, on the other hand, they'll bring an Air Force's mindset to the application of the drones, whereas somebody who doesn't have that, you know, 70, 80 years of tradition like the Royal Australian Air Force might think about it quite differently. So there, there's pros and cons to either approach. Um, but let me make the observation that with cyber operations, we pretty much have set up a new unit. That the old, uh, what used to be Defence Signals Directorate in my day, now the Australian Signals Directorate, is the home for the Cyber Operations Centre. Um, and while it has uniformed people as well as civilian people on the staff, it, it is to all intents and purposes a new organisation with all sorts of ties to the old ones. One of the questions I'd have, and it's a bit hard to tell from outside, is just how innovative it's being. But from the little hints we get, I think it's actually been quite a successful model. Yeah, so Andrew, one of the potentially disruptive technologies is hypersonics, and you spoke about that today. So I thought I'd take the opportunity to ask you, well, first of all, what is it? Something that goes really, really fast. Yeah? Yeah. Oh, you want more? <laughs> you can give more if you like. Okay. All right. Um, well, but basically, it's, it's any um, vehicle or object that travels at more than about five times the speed of sound. 
from a warfare point of view, and I'm not a traditional warfare kind of a guy, so I'm a total novice, what difference does that make? Well, look, you, you can read lots of hype about hypersonics. I, I think that's probably what the hype stands for. Um, people saying that this is going to be a revolutionary new thing. But the fact of the matter is that we've had hypersonic weapons in one form for the last 60 years. And that is when an intercontinental ballistic missile returns to Earth, it comes in at something like 20 to 30 times the speed of sound. And in fact, the original research on hypersonics was specifically triggered by that need to be able to understand how to manoeuvre um, something at such a speed. It seems that things are changing in that people think that they can actually use these really fast weapons in the battlefield. The, the example you gave of an ICBM, to me, it, it doesn't feel like a battlefield because it just turns into a nuclear wasteland very, very quickly. Whereas an actual deployable weapon might get you some effect on a sort of smaller scale. Is that true? Is, have things changed? Yeah, look, I, th I think what's changed, and if you look back at the early literature on the subject, and, and the sort of seminal paper came out of the uh, forerunner to NASA in uh, 1954, um, and they talked about things like glide weapons, which was a weapon that um, is in orbit, and when given a signal, it descends, and it used, literally skips off the Earth's atmosphere once or maybe twice, and then comes to Earth wherever you want. So you can bring something to Earth anywhere on Earth within about 40 minutes. Uh, that concept was out there in the 1950s. It's probably more doable today, and people are seriously thinking about it. So that's one class of new hypersonic weapons. Um, the other one is either air breathing or in the, the Russians are claiming to have a nuclear-powered version, and that's something that travels many times the speed of sound, but is like a cruise missile. So imagine a very, very fast Tomahawk missile, that, that kind of thing. And does that actually change the nature of warfare? I, I guess what I'm my starting position is that we're almost certainly spending our money in the wrong way in terms of the Defence Capability Program because we don't know what the future holds. Do you think that hypersonics mean that we are spending our money in the wrong way? Look, my, my, my judgment is that hypersonics are more of an evolution. Uh, it, it's hard to point at anything in any hypersonic system and say that's genuinely novel. What they tend to be is faster versions of things we had before. Now, I'm going to make myself unpopular with, with anyone who wears a white uniform. The biggest possible application for these things is in anti-shipping weapons. Because if you can have something that comes over the horizon at 10 times the speed of sound, a ship's got about 10 seconds to locate it, track it, uh, calculate a trajectory and intercept it. And I think that's probably doable, uh, but history shows that the less time you give a ship to defend itself or the more times you can have a crack at it, the more likely you are to hit it. And I actually think that the age of the surface combatant, the large grey painted naval vessel, um, passed decades ago, but we hadn't noticed it because we haven't had a, a large scale war in that time. So you wouldn't be arguing for us, uh, for Australia, that is, to be building any aircraft carriers anytime soon? No, I wouldn't be building aircraft carriers anytime soon. And I think we're probably um, building uh, surface combatants that are too big and too expensive. Would you argue that we build smaller, unmanned, cheaper? vehicles or is it something totally different that we should be doing? Um, well, look, I, I think generally the trend in warfare overall, and it's not just due, due to hypersonics, there, there's a, a range of things going on, um, but is towards less lumpiness 
right? The traditional warfare platforms are big, hard, lumpy things like, you know, tanks, large ships, large bomber aircraft. I think the trend is towards smaller, um, more numerous. So it's a sort of demassification, if you want to use a, a, a horrible sort of buzzword, um, dispersing on the battlefield. So you say that's the trend, but I don't see that trend reflected in what we're actually buying, though. No. Well, a a again, if you look at the history of warfare, uh, major platforms tend to be around for long past their use-by date um, until it is proven uh, through a battlefield disaster that they're not as useful as they used to be. Um, and the battleship would be the primary example of that. Uh, the, the, the battleship's heyday had passed before World War II with the advent of the aeroplane and the submarine. And yet most of the uh, combatants in World War II went into it with battleships and a large number of those battleships ended up sunk. One of the things that I thought was interesting was the, the bit you talked about prompt global strike. Can you tell us what that is? Well, the, the, that comes back to the sort of glide weapons I was talking about a minute ago. So you have something in orbit, a big lump of something. It, it needn't even have a warhead because of the amount of energy that something can hit the ground with um, descending from orbit. The kinetic energy enough is to do the job. But the basic idea uh, with prompt global strike is that you have weapons that can strike anywhere on the Earth's surface within minutes um, and certainly under an hour. So the Pentagon has certainly been, uh, this has been a gleam in the eye for at least the past decade. Uh, it worries me from a strategic point of view. From a very narrow weapon-centric point of view, having the ability to strike anywhere on the Earth's surface very quickly might sound appealing if you're a global superpower. But the guy on the receiving end of that, they get a radar track that says there's an, uh, something incoming from orbit. How are they to know whether it's a global strike vehicle carrying a conventional warhead or perhaps no warhead at all, um, or something carrying a nuclear weapon. And if the Cold War taught us one thing, it's that the potential for a catastrophic error in misidentifying things as a nuclear strike is really, really perilous. It seems like a tremendous place to end on the thought of thermonuclear destruction. Yes, well, there's, there's no more definitive end than thermonuclear destruction. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Tom. Thanks for listening. As always, please send us your thoughts via Twitter or leave a comment on iTunes. We'll be back soon.